The following is brought to you by the generous support of Clio. The case of Uriah Courtney is an example of getting really lucky and why it's critical to never give up on your innocence. Although Uriah was serving a life sentence for a kidnapping and rape he did not commit, the key to his freedom was being safely maintained in the evidence locker. It would take a lot of faith from his stepdad and a ton of work from his innocence team, but eventually there would be an opportunity to retest the evidence. And this time, it would be with new technology. Ultimately, the DNA tests revealed that someone else committed the crimes. Unfortunately, the prosecutor, for a multitude of reasons, decided not to prosecute the true rapist, who sexually battered a 16-year-old girl, resulting in an innocent man going to prison for eight years and four months. Injustice is an enormous understatement for a case like this, but if there's a silver lining to all of the suffering, it might be what we can learn from it. I'm Michael Simanchik, and you're listening to part two of DNA Evidence from the California Innocence Project podcast. Spent most of my life in prison Chasing a dream called justice Chasing a dream, chasing a dream Won't somebody please hear my plea Won't somebody please set me free? During the last episode, we learned about the importance of preserving evidence as well as knowing where to test for DNA. Uriah Courtney's exoneration is the perfect illustration of those two concepts. In this episode, we're going to walk through the complexities of Uriah's case with the people who worked on it. But before we get to that, Let's check in with Uriah for a few minutes. You might remember him from the first episode when he told his complete account of wrongful conviction and incarceration. Today, Uriah works as a pipe fitter with a great job in the San Diego area. Back in his youth, he had a few run-ins with the law, but nothing major, and certainly nothing violent against other people. Unfortunately, sometimes when you get on that bad track, you also end up on law enforcement's radar, and that can be a real problem when you need the benefit of the doubt. But let's hear more about that directly from Uriah. Here's a brief recap. My name is Uriah Courtney. I was born and raised in Salmon, Idaho, a very small town in Idaho. It's actually an old logging town. Got uh, six brothers and sisters. I got four sisters and two brothers, not including step-siblings as well. So pretty good-sized family. We're all spread out all over the United States. Yeah, you know, didn't have, I wouldn't say the the best childhood because my parents divorced when I was pretty young, when I was five. So I spent a lot of time moving, bouncing back and forth between my parents. Uriah's early run-ins with the law stemmed from substance abuse, an issue he struggled with for many years. Unfortunately, these smaller crimes would cause him to be noticed by law enforcement. And eventually, that association would escalate into becoming a person of interest for investigators. 2005 was um, a really, really rough time in life. I was a drug addict. I was addicted to methamphetamine, and I pretty much did whatever was available. I had a a pretty extensive arrest record, mostly drug-related, drug and alcohol-related incidents. I didn't have any any violent crimes or crimes against other people. It was all pretty much self-inflicted and stuff that involved drugs and drinking and, you know, misbehaviors as a result of that. 
The crime that Uriah was falsely accused of causes visceral reactions in most people. Even prisoners are disgusted by it. So much so that anyone who is convicted of this type of crime will do anything to keep it a secret while they are in prison. Here's Uriah telling us more about the crime committed by someone else. So the crime happened in Lemon Grove here in San Diego. Um, it was a 16-year-old girl that was walking down the street from her house. And a guy drove past her in a white pickup truck, a small white pickup truck with, a, in her words, a beat-up camper shell. And, you know, sometime shortly thereafter, maybe like 10 or 15 minutes after, she noticed this guy driving by in that truck staring at her while she walked down the street. She was attacked from behind. She was able to break free the first time. Uh, the man continued to chase her, grabbed her, thrust her down on the side of the road, and digitally penetrated her with, her with his finger. She was able to get up and break free again, and there was a lady, a passerby driving, and she was able to get her to stop, and I believe she got into that, that lady's vehicle and, and, and drove off from there. Uriah did not own a truck with a camper shell on it, but his stepfather did. And unfortunately, a coworker was borrowing that truck and had it parked in his driveway in Lemon Grove. And that driveway just happened to be close to where the rape took place. These inopportune coincidences slowly pulled Uriah into the crime's orbit. And so after the crime was committed, the police got a description of the vehicle and then also a, a description from the victim of what the guy, you know, supposedly looked like in the, in the truck. And um, they put an APB out on that vehicle. And I think it was roughly a month after the crime was actually committed that somebody spotted a white pickup truck in my coworker's driveway. And so they called it in. A uh, detective went over there, took photos of the truck, also questioned my coworker and showed the victim a, I think it was um, a driver's license photo of my coworker, and she, you know, said no, that he was too old. At this point, the coworker is eliminated as the suspect, but as we'll hear shortly, this initial contact with police would turn into something much bigger. Once investigators saw that truck, they were going to follow up on it. What nobody knew at the time was that the actual perpetrator looked similar to Uriah. So... Uh, I don't really know all the details of how um, it came to me, but needless to say, it got back to, you know, my stepfather being the owner of the truck. So they discovered that I was using my parents' physical address, which was in Ocean Beach, as a, a mailing address, which I was. Uh, I didn't live there, but I used their address as a mailing address uh, because I had just recently moved back to San Diego from uh, Nevada. So I used their address to get a, uh, a driver's license for California. And so they also used my photo for my driver's license and showed it to the victim. And I guess they put that in like a six-pack photo lineup. The victim did pick out my photo, but she was not 100% sure. She said something like, you know, looks like him, something to that effect. Uriah was falsely convicted on March 15, 2006, and received a life sentence. 
It should be noted that he was offered a plea deal for 15 to 20 years prior to that conviction. He refused it because he was innocent and still believed the system would free him. Uriah was in a dark place and had burned many bridges, but his stepfather Rick Gambino still supported him. During the trial, he found evidence that proved Uriah could not have committed the crime because he was at work with other people. But unfortunately, the jury didn't buy it. Perhaps they thought Uriah's stepdad was lying to save him from prison. Thankfully, Rick never gave up on Uriah and actually helped connect him with our California Innocence Project. We reviewed his case and requested access to the evidence. One of the difficulties with a case like Uriah's is that the evidence needed for an exoneration might not exist anymore, even if it was collected in the first place. Luckily, the evidence still existed, and we were able to test it. Based on the information used in the conviction, we knew what to test and where to test it in order to determine Uriah's innocence or guilt. Our litigation coordinator, Alyssa Bierkel, worked closely on that case, and it truly came down to microscopic margins. Here's how she got involved in Uriah's exoneration. Well, whenever I look at a case to see if it has a potential for a wrongful conviction, I'm, I'm looking for any of the factors that we know contribute to wrongful convictions. The biggest one is bad eyewitness identification, just witnesses who are wrong about who they saw commit the crime. When I looked at Uriah's case, the identification was very, very shaky. It was a young girl. She was only 16 years old at the time. She was sexually assaulted. She had said she only saw her attacker from the side of his face, never even saw a full-on front look of him. When the identification procedure happened, she identified three people out of the six-pack photo lineup and said that she was most certain it was Uriah, but even then she was only 60% sure. It's a scary thought that a 60% certainty is enough to permanently deprive someone of their freedom. We don't tolerate getting 60% on a test. We would never get on planes if they only had a 60% chance of landing safely. 60% is a D. It's barely not a fail. And yet we accept it with our most precious gift in the criminal justice system, our freedom. And so that kind of just set off a couple, you know, concerns for me, like, well, maybe, maybe this could be a wrongful conviction. I mean, there are times where witnesses have shaky identifications and they got it right. But this one um, turned out she wasn't right. And so then you start digging in more. What were you hoping to find in terms of evidence to test? And, you know, what were you looking to do? In eyewitness identification cases, it's very difficult to get a reversal of the conviction unless you have some sort of other evidence to prove that identification was wrong. That typically means DNA evidence. So just a recanting witness isn't going to do it? Usually not. In fact, the courts in the post-conviction context are required to view recantations with suspicion. They're required to, from the get-go, take the stance that this witness is probably lying. And so when you're faced with just a recantation, that's very, very difficult to convince a judge that they are not lying. And the other thing is, it's not enough for the witness to say that I was mistaken because it's just that's not the type of really solid, credible evidence that can reverse a conviction. That last part Alyssa mentioned is one of the most frustrating things about innocence work. Even when the eyewitness themselves admits they made a mistake, the court is reluctant to reverse a conviction. That disparity is maddening. A person with their mistaken testimony is enough to prosecute, but then when that same person wants to correct their error, 
it's all of a sudden not considered reliable. This is one of the numerous inconsistencies in our criminal justice system that defies understanding. Fortunately for Uriah, DNA science had advanced just enough to give him a second chance. And despite all those years of injustice and suffering, he was about to become one of the lucky ones. The only question was how to use that new DNA technology. Here's Alyssa talking about the importance of knowing exactly where to look when it comes to utilizing more advanced science. Yes, when you're looking at a case from the DNA angle, you are looking to see what story the DNA can tell. And to piece together that story, you need to find out all the places that the perpetrator touched. Because by the time this case came around to DNA testing in 2012, DNA technology had advanced to such a degree that just leaving a few skin cells on a piece of clothing, for example, would have the potential to get you a DNA profile. That wasn't true in 2005 when this attack took place. When this man, you know, attempted to rape her, he was able to digitally penetrate her. He had ripped some of her clothing. He had dragged her into the bushes. He had picked her up at one point. And the most significant fact from the DNA angle was that when he picked her up, he did have facial hair. And his she said that his facial hair, his chin, was touching her shoulder. And that area we were extremely interested in because hair, especially beards and facial hair, tends to carry a lot of DNA. Who was it that discovered or that came up with the idea or realized that the, the perpetrator's facial hair came in contact with the victim? The victim had told the police okay. that that had happened and also testified at trial that that had happened, that he kind of had his chin over her shoulder and when he was uh, carrying her. It is amazing how much of a difference experience can make. Alyssa was able to scour the record and from that figured out exactly where, on a piece of clothing, to test for invisible and extremely fragile DNA. She was able to do what full-time professional investigators were not back in 2005. She identified the true perpetrator of the crime. Without this high level of expertise, there is no doubt Uriah would still be serving life behind bars. Here's more from Alyssa about the prosecution's hesitancy to allow for retesting. The next step for us was to ask the prosecutor's office if they would agree to post-conviction DNA testing. Um, At the time, they weren't that interested. I think part of that had to do with the fact that the DA who prosecuted the case was still very much, I think, very much in contact with the victim still. She felt really, really bad for her and stuff. And I think this was just a case that they weren't feeling that concerned about being a wrongful conviction. So since there was no cooperation at that moment, we went ahead and filed a post-conviction motion for DNA testing. A post-conviction motion for DNA testing is a process used outside of traditional appeals. They are not carried out the same state to state. Some places only allow it for limited felonies, whereas other states allow it for review of all crimes. So it can matter quite a bit where the conviction happens. Yeah, I think they're falling back on the identification. Um, And I don't think any prosecutor wants to think that they have prosecuted a case where they essentially allowed a victim to identify the wrong person. There were a number of problems with the identification procedure in this case in particular, which did lead to this wrongful identification. But I don't think just from like a personal standpoint that somebody wants to confront the fact that maybe they got it wrong. Right. That's a hard thing to do, I think. 
Okay, so you file the motion, and then how long does it take before the court makes a decision on whether or not to uh, grant testing? Typically, when you file a post-conviction DNA testing motion, it could take between six months and a year for the court to rule on it. We got a, a little bit lucky in this case because even though the prosecutor's office originally did not agree to DNA testing, they did change their tune after we filed the motion. And then um, once they agreed, okay, actually, we are going to do DNA testing in this case, then it went relatively quickly. Remember how I said Uriah was very lucky evidence was still available for retesting? Historically speaking, the preservation of evidence was not a priority for law enforcement. Things have certainly improved, but for vast numbers of people who have been behind bars for long periods of time, chances are evidence is missing from their file. And for the innocent, a missing item could hold the key to their freedom. Where evidence is stored and who is responsible for it matters. In later episodes, we'll talk about various ways to make sure evidence is preserved for future appeals. Here, the evidence was stored as court exhibits. So the evidence wasn't in the possession of the police officers at the time. We ended up being lucky because of that. Just to give you an idea, I did some analysis of like 100 cases where we'd search for DNA evidence, and only in about 17% of the cases did some evidence exist. All evidence existed only in about 3% of the cases Wow, that was in law enforcement's custody. So in a way, we got lucky that at the time of trial, the prosecutor did introduce the victim's clothing as exhibits at trial and that those still existed at the courthouse for us to send to the lab. So, yeah, we set, we had a, um, a person who was former law enforcement and worked in a crime lab, gathered the evidence at the courthouse, ship it to a laboratory for DNA testing. DNA evidence can degrade over time, and so we constantly worry about it being usable for future tests. But beyond degradation are other issues that impact the ability to extract DNA. Here's more from Alyssa about that. There's a number of concerns you have in testing old evidence. One is obviously that DNA can degrade over time. That can cause you that even if DNA, you know, was there, it can cause you not to get a result when you actually do a DNA test on it. A lot of things that speed up DNA degradation are like heat and exposure to the elements. And so thankfully, something stored in the exhibits room at the courthouse isn't going to have those problems. We did have some concerns about contamination as well, because some of these cases, you know, the, the, the shirt, for example, was placed into a paper bag and the paper bag was thrown into the box and then there, it caught on something in the edge of the paper bag ripped. Thankfully, it wasn't anything that was extreme, but these things happen where evidence is just kind of tossed in together and can come into contact with other stuff. Hmm. It seems strange that the clothing actually made its way to the court. Was it used to show the jury what she was wearing that day? Like, how does that help the jury make a decision? It's very unusual to introduce the clothing as an exhibit at court. It really was. But unusual and very, very lucky for Uriah. I don't know if you caught that last part, but we believe one of the big reasons the victim's shirt was still with Uriah's evidence file was that it was used as an exhibit during his trial. Given that a DNA profile was not pulled from that shirt in 2005, it is strange that they would use it for their case. Regardless, we are glad it was there, because it provided the DNA profile for another person. But that's not the end of the story. It's not enough to simply see another person's DNA in the mix. Why is that DNA there, and what does it mean? As it turned out, we would have to wait another nine months to figure out whether we were getting good news or bad news. 
When you're behind bars waiting for those kind of results, that's a long time to anticipate and worry. The testing generally can take between a couple months and up to a year. In some circumstances, you can pay for expedited testing, and you're still looking at about a couple weeks to a couple months. But in this case, it took, I think we got the results in December, so about nine months. Wow. What did you see in the results? So we had asked for testing on all the different locations the perpetrator had touched. That part of the shirt that I was telling you about where the beard came in contact, but also her skirt where he was grabbing at, her underwear where he had actually grabbed a hold of them and ripped them. And interestingly enough, we did not get very much DNA at all off of the skirt or the underwear, but we got a full male profile off of the shirt. So you get this full male profile. I assume you immediately compare it to Uriah's profile. Yeah, the lab actually had already done that in their report to us, and so he was already excluded from that full male profile. So then what do you do going forward? Because, um, you know, it could be anybody's. It could be somebody's DNA that got onto her shirt innocently. Let's say at the store, somebody brushed up against her. Or, you know, maybe she uses the same washer and dryer as somebody, and there's DNA that happens to land on her shoulder. How do you go about figuring out who it belonged to and, and whether that DNA matters in the first place? Well, there's a couple first common sense things that you have to look up. For example, if this was an innocent pickup from somebody standing by her on a bus who coughed on her or whatnot, then you're going to also have to explain the fact that the perpetrator's DNA magically did not get there while this other person's DNA did. Just so we don't get confused, what Alyssa just mentioned here is that they found DNA evidence on the victim's shirt, and it did not belong to Uriah. Now, that's good news for Uriah, but it might not be enough for the court to exonerate him. After all, just because another person's DNA is on that shirt does not mean they committed the crime. There are all sorts of reasons for an innocent person's DNA to be on that shirt. Maybe they accidentally bumped into the victim while waiting in a line. Perhaps they sneezed without covering their mouth as they walked by. They could have been the store clerk who sold that shirt to the victim, scanning it before placing it into a shopping bag. And since Uriah was identified by the victim and a second witness, it was going to take more than his DNA not being found on that shirt to exonerate him. That other person's DNA profile would need to reveal much more. Luckily for Uriah, it did. The other way we were able to find out this was not some sort of innocent DNA that ended up on her was that we ran that profile through the National DNA Data Bank of convicted offenders, and we got a hit to the guy who really committed this crime. And who was that? It was a sex offender who lived in the area, and he had been committing similar crimes both before and after this crime. It's a terrible thought that this guy was out there assaulting women for all those years. But if there is a silver lining, it is that he has been caught, and now his trail of attacks can be used to free the innocent man who paid for his sins. If you're fighting for innocence and freedom, this is the exact type of DNA profile you want to pop up in CODIS. Because when prosecutors see that, they are more likely to help you. And if you're lucky, they might even do it quickly. As soon as the CODIS hit came in, I was working with a wonderful prosecutor named Brent Neck. And he, at the time, was head of the conviction review unit at the prosecutor's office. And he called me and he just said, Alyssa, you are not going to believe this. And he said, I pulled up the photo of the guy who this CODIS hit linked to and he looks just like Uriah. Wow. <laughs> so the eyewitness ID actually wasn't that far off. 
It wasn't that far off. Wow. And it's a shame because really Uriah's big crime in this entire thing was simply looking like someone who did do this. Wow. So then how long does it take from Brent giving you the call to going to court? Oh, it was just a matter of weeks. Wow. And then how do you go about telling Uriah? Thankfully, Uriah was housed in the prison here in San Diego in Donovan State Prison. Usually our clients are housed, you know, 8, 12 hours drive away, and it's very difficult to get to them. Because he was local and he was in town, um, my boss, Justin Brooks, me and another lawyer got to go and tell him in person. And uh, What was that like? You know, God, I was so nervous ahead of time, too. And he, Uriah is just such a quiet, humble guy and just has kind of a, a little bit of a nervous disposition about him at that time. And this was the first time he'd met Justin. And J- Justin, you know, very well-known name among the inmates in California as, like, the guy you write to if you're wrongfully convicted. And very rare that anyone actually, you know, meets the Justin Brooks. So here he was sitting in the room with Uriah, and Uriah was very nervous about it. And Justin says to him, you know, uh, there's only two reasons I'd be here today, Uriah. One is that it's very bad news. And one is that it's really good. And it's good news. And we all cried. And now I'm going to start crying again, too. Uriah lost a lot paying for someone else's crimes. Not only did he lose over eight years of his life, but he was alienated from his son, who was three when he was incarcerated. And under California law, if you were convicted of a sexual offense, you cannot have contact with any children, including your own. By the time Uriah got out, his son was 11. Despite the grave injustice he and his family suffered, we still consider him one of the lucky ones in our line of work, as unbelievable as that sounds. God, you hate to say lucky when somebody spent eight years in prison for someone else's crime, but he is lucky in the context of these types of cases. His case moved so quickly through the legal system. Some of these cases can take 10, 15 years to resolve. He was so lucky that the evidence existed. He was lucky the lab was competent enough to get that profile. And unfortunately, he was lucky enough that that guy who really committed those crimes had been caught for other crimes and his DNA entered into the databank. DNA evidence is the best weapon innocence projects have for reversing wrongful convictions. It overcomes misidentifications, junk science, and even false accusations. It was vital in Uriah's case. Without it, Uriah probably would have spent the rest of his life behind bars. But as strong as DNA technology is, it only works if there is evidence to test. Unfortunately for so many, their evidence has been destroyed, lost, or thrown away. Here's what Alyssa had to say about that. As long as somebody is incarcerated, for as long as they are in there, the evidence should be preserved. I mean, ideal conditions involve refrigeration. That could be a a little bit onerous when we're talking about storage of large, large quantities of evidence. But keep in mind, we can get DNA evidence from skeletons from thousands of years ago. So it's not detrimental to these DNA cases to store it in just ambient conditions, which is fine. We've had cases, a case in our office, a 36-year-old case where we got a DNA profile off of evidence. It can be done. Well, one thing's for sure, you destroy that evidence, you'll never have the chance to even see. (laughs) 
DNA technology is getting better all the time. Not only are investigators able to make identifications for much smaller amounts of genetic material, but their training and know-how have vastly improved, too. As we mentioned earlier, DNA testing has become so sensitive that investigators are able to identify individuals from as little as one cell of genetic material on an object. So what's the problem with that? Well, genetic material can stay on objects for many years, and there's no way to know when it first got there. Over time, more and more DNA profiles can come in contact with an object. And so how are investigators supposed to make sense out of all this? The answer is they can't always figure it out. The current testing systems can only handle so many DNA profiles on an object before the results become useless. So when the mixture is very, very complicated and we're talking more than four or five contributors to it, the results really can be useless. There's just no way to figure it out. There's no way to deconvolute that to see what meaning this DNA has. When you're less than that, you still can deconvolute that mixture. There's analysts who are proficient in some of it. There, there is a kind of move towards using probabilistic genotyping software. There's a number of different companies that have this type of software. The, probably the two main ones are Truallele and StarMix. I think StarMix is the one taking a little bit more firmer foothold with law enforcement. But these are software programs that will actually take the DNA data and deconvolute it to try to give you some sense of what this DNA means. You might remember our conversation about secondary DNA transfers from the previous episode. Humans shed a lot of cells through the day. And because of the physical nature of our world, those cells can end up on other people and objects, even if we had no contact with them. As we discussed in the previous episode, secondary transfers happen all the time because we touch a lot of the same objects, like door handles and credit card machines. Our DNA can literally be lifted from object to object and person to person by other people. There is probably no more iconic secondary transfer case than the one with Lucas Anderson from Santa Clara County, California. Despite having an ironclad alibi and no previous contact, his DNA mysteriously ended up under the fingernails of a murder victim. To make matters worse, Lucas was homeless with a drinking problem, and so his memory was not the best. Here's Alyssa walking us through this mind-bender case. Yeah, you know, it's a case that involves a homicide, a homeless guy, and the world's best alibi. There was a homeless man who had been taken in, a, in an ambulance to the hospital. The paramedics had placed one of those oxygen monitors on, on his finger while they were transporting him there. While he's at the hospital, the paramedics respond to a homicide scene. Somebody had been brutally murdered, and they took the victim in that same ambulance, put that same oxygen monitor onto the victim's finger, and he was later pronounced dead at the hospital. Well, when forensics came back on the homicide victim's fingernail scrapings, the prior person who rode in that ambulance came up, and he was charged with murder because they thought that the DNA— indisputably proved that he was the one who committed this murder. Why else was his DNA be under a homicide victim's fingernails? Wow. It took, I think, over a year until the public defender's office was able to sort it all out and figure out that this guy's alibi was he was in the hospital at the time this murder happened. And they rode in the same ambulance. They rode in the, the same, same ambulance. Box. And it was just wow. a DNA transfer from the oxygen monitor wow. from an innocent person onto a homicide victim's finger. How scary is that? You just happen to touch the same object as a murder victim and suddenly find yourself accused of murder. 
But for the hospital records and a savvy defense attorney, it is very likely Lucas Anderson would be serving a life sentence behind bars. These are the kind of cases that keep us up at night. How many innocent people have been incarcerated for this type of secondary DNA transfer? I don't think we'll ever know, and that is a frightening thought. We mentioned earlier how Uriah declined a plea deal that would have set him free in as little as 15 years. He did that because he believed the system would eventually find him innocent. He maintained that belief even though he was convicted and waiting for his sentencing hearing. During those hearings, it is common to hear a recently convicted person profess regret and remorse. They might apologize to the victim or their family. Sometimes they beg for mercy. They do that in an effort to convince the court that they are worthy of a lighter sentence. During his sentencing hearing, when he needed as much leniency as possible, Uriah went in a different direction when he addressed the court. Although it would give him a terrifying setback in the form of a life sentence, it turned out to be an incredibly smart decision. Not only was it powerful and prophetic, but it also caught our eye. I've seen this in several of our DNA exonerations where at sentencing, the defendant is allowed an opportunity to address the court and make any statements they want, usually in the hopes for, you know, a more lenient sentence like, oh, Your Honor, I'm really sorry about this and I feel very bad for the victim's family and I just, you know, I'm a changed man and I've done all these programming things while I've been in county jail for this and please, you know, give me the lowest sentence that you possibly can give me. And so that's usually, usually the reason why defendants will make a plea to the court. But In Uriah's case, he used that opportunity to tell the court that he was innocent. And it was really, it's very moving. I mean, if you don't mind, I would love to read what he said to you. Yeah. Okay, so he says, and this is right before the judge is going to impose a life sentence for this crime that Uriah didn't do. He says, Your Honor, since I've been convicted of this crime, I imagine the court would like me to show some kind of remorse. But how is one to show remorse for something he didn't do? I'm an innocent man who has been wrongfully accused of a crime for something I did not and would not ever commit. And now because it is I who has been convicted of this crime, Erica's real attacker is out there somewhere. Every time I read an article in the newspaper of another woman who's been attacked, it makes me feel so sad and depressed because I can't help but wonder if it is the same man who attacked Erica, and this is the cause of all of this. Erica, my thoughts and prayers go out to you, and I wish you the best in the process of healing. No one should ever have to experience the defiling and degrading of one's body like you went through. I can't imagine the hurt and pain you must have felt and are still going through. This was an act of complete disregard to your mind, body, and soul, and I feel very sorry for you. I know you probably hate me, and justifiably so, but your hatred is directed at the wrong person. I'm sorry, Erica, but you were mistaken in your identification of me as your attacker. It was a simple mistake, but one that has had monumental repercussions, because now neither one of us are receiving the justice we deserve. I hope and pray for both of us that the man who really attacked you is captured and brought to justice so that he can't hurt anyone else, so we both may have peace in the justice we seek. Your Honor, Erica and her family are undoubtedly the true victims in this case, but they are not the only ones whose lives have been so utterly devastated by the actions of another man. My family and I have become his victims, too, by being dragged into this nightmare. So I ask that you please take these things into consideration and have mercy on an innocent man. Despite all the years behind bars for a rape and kidnapping he did not commit, Uriah was one of the lucky ones. He had support on the outside from his family. 
and that support sent his file to our office for review. The evidence still existed, and he was allowed to retest it. A DNA hit in CODIS pointed to a habitual offender. There was a receptive prosecutor on the other side who facilitated rather than put up roadblocks. I asked Uriah about this during our time together. The nice thing about being able to do this is I can come and talk about it, and I can go on and enjoy the rest of my day. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's the blessing of being, you know, a free individual. Right. Have you ever thought about what would have happened if they didn't preserve the evidence in the case? Absolutely. That thought comes to mind frequently, actually. The thought in itself is absolutely devastating because I think that if the evidence hadn't been preserved or maybe if the perpetrator's DNA wasn't in the database, what would have happened then? But, you know, mostly just the fact that, well, what if the clothing hadn't been preserved? It's likely there would have really been no hope for me. We learned a lot from Uriah's case. First, innocent coincidences happen and they can pile up. You might bear a resemblance to the real perpetrator. Your stepdad's truck might look similar to the one used by a rapist. Your coworker might borrow that truck and park it in his driveway. And that driveway might happen to be close to where a sexual assault happened. All of these things happening together seem far-fetched, and yet they happen. Second, just because DNA evidence was not detected in the past does not mean it won't be detected with newer technology in the future. So it is very important to preserve your evidence. Without it, you don't stand a chance. And third, and most important, don't give up on your innocence. There are good people out there fighting for it, and innocent people are being helped every day. If you or a loved one is serving time for a crime committed by someone else, you need to act quickly to preserve the evidence. Reach out to a local Innocence Project or the Innocence Network to learn how. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Produced and written by Lawrence Coletti. Audio engineering by Adam Lockwood. Thank you to Clio for their support of the California Innocence Project and the CIP podcast. Special contribution of music and sound elements by real-life exoneree William Michael Dillon. You can find his catalog of work at frameddillon.com. That's framed, D-I-L-L-O-N.com. We'll see you next time. Until then, I'm your host, Michael Samanchik, and you've been listening to the California Innocence Project podcast here on Legal Talk Network. Every month, the California Innocence Project receives thousands of handwritten letters from those seeking justice for wrongful convictions. The impact of these injustices can be life-altering, and without the right technology in place, CIP cannot help all those in need. That's why the team relies on Clio's case management software. By logging these letters into Clio, the CIP team can work on hundreds of matters at any given time and investigate these cases all the way through to exoneration. Clio works tirelessly with organizations like CIP to transform the legal experience for all. Visit Clio.com to learn how they support law firms big and small in creating equitable and just outcomes. That's C-L-I-O dot com.